Hello, we are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts, which impact the ever-changing social world we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belong to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are privileged that we can welcome you to today's conversation. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. Today, I have two wonderful guests for you. My first guest is Rick Miller. Rick is a a professor of practice and clinical director here at ASU's Center for the Advanced Study and Practice of Hope. He has spent 50 years in the field of child and youth development as a practitioner, researcher, professor, public policy expert, and author. He is also the founder of Kids at Hope, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to understanding the science of hope and promoting the message that all children are capable of success. My second guest is his colleague, Dr. John Parsi. John is a professor of practice and executive director at the Center for the Advanced Study and Practice of Hope. He also currently serves as the president of Kids at Hope. He comes from a legal background, having clerked for then-Justice Morgan Christian of the Alaska Supreme Court, who is now on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. District Court Judge John W. Sedgwick. So the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm going to be asking both of you three rapid fire questions. These first ones are just introductory icebreakers to get to know you better on a surface level. And then the ending ones will get quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is to just answer them quickly with about a sentence. How does that sound? Perfect. Great. And just to keep everything nice and cohesive, I'm going to ask that Rick answers first and then John will answer second. So my first question for both of you is, what is your favorite game or sport? Well, when I was younger, it was all three major sports, football, basketball, baseball, and I'll throw in track and field, but now it's golf. There you go. Um, My favorite game right now is wingspan, the board game. I really love that. But if I were to pick a sport, it would probably be basketball. Go Phoenix Suns. (laughs) I love it. We got to rep the home team. Yeah. My second question, guys, is what is your favorite city you've ever traveled to? Mine is Prague in the Republic of Czechoslovakia. My favorite city is probably Milan. That was a place that I spent a lot of time <clears throat> as a youth for two years and then again as an adult for a year. And I just love Milan. Oh, that is fantastic. Those are such worldly answers. My last question is, what would be your go-to karaoke song? And don't worry, I will not make you sing it. Well, knowing my voice, it'd probably be the hokey pokey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that is a tough question. Um, Blackbird by the Beatles. Hey, that's a great song. So I think that's a great answer. (laughs) 
So I am so happy to have both of you on. Firstly, I just want to say thank you both for being on. It is such a pleasure to be able to talk to two people who are so dedicated to the science of hope and who have really done so much in their careers to help just better understand hope in general. So I would just like to start by saying thank you both for being on. Thank you. So I want to just get started by talking about hope. So I'm going to leave this as an open question, but what is hope and why is it so important that we understand it at a scientific level? Well, hope, hope is everything that we are as human beings. We're the only species on earth. You think of the millions of, of living organisms. We were the only ones gifted with this ability to be hopeful. So it's, 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 a, it's a gift that distinguishes us from all other living organisms on earth and it gives us meaning for our lives and the ability to move forward with our goals, our ambitions, our expectations, our dreams, and to put them into a form where we can achieve what it is that we've imagined going forward. Yeah, so I, I always think of it as uh, the formula GPA, right? Goals, pathways, and agency. It's about setting goals for your future, returning to the present, figuring out through both pathway thinking and agency thinking, how to achieve those goals. So an assessment of kind of your strengths and abilities, what resources you have in front of you and the different ways to get to those goals. Um, and it's been, it's been robustly tested across a number of different areas to be highly efficacious, right? People with high hope uh, have higher achievement in school, have higher achievement in their jobs, have better job satisfaction, better mental health outcome, better physical health outcomes, are less likely to be involved in substance abuse. Um, they can deal with trauma more effectively. There are a number of different measures in which we've scientifically demonstrated that this capacity to be hopeful, to be able to set goals, engage in pathway and agency thinking has a, a myriad of positive effects on, on a person. I love that answer describing hope in terms of goal setting, because when I first was reading a little bit about hope, I was sort of surprised because that definition of hope was a little bit different from what I initially thought hope was, because initially when I thought about hope, I thought it was just sort of, oh, you know, I'm thinking and I really hope that something good happens to me. I, I hope that I wake up tomorrow and someone deposited a million dollars in my bank account, but it sounds like hope is really less about that and more about me being able to make a plan so that I understand that I won't wake up tomorrow with a million dollars deposited in my bank account. However, I could do X, Y, and Z to set myself up for greater financial stability. And I have hope that even though I'm not a millionaire tomorrow, I might be financially comfortable next year or in five years. So we, we spend a fair amount of time in our work distinguishing hope from other constructs where it somewhat gets confused and mixed into. And those would be optimism, which is a passive way of thinking positively about the future, but it requires no action on your part, like wishful thinking. We distinguish it from self-esteem. We, we distinguish it from self-efficacy. Uh, that hope really stands on its own and that's what's been so exciting about looking at the science of hope. Uh, often we confuse it with an emotion. Sometimes we feel hopeful and sometimes we don't. In your case, sometimes we confuse it with, with wishful thinking uh, where you're looking for a third person to grant it, grant what you want to, to see happen. 
but hope requires you to grant your own wishes. And your point taken and, and John's point taken, where that begins with a goal. And then that's followed up with a strategy to get from where you are to where you want to be. How are you going to get those million dollars? Right. So you have to have a pathway to that. And then it ends up with what we call agency. And that is that are you willing to make a personal commitment to the achievement of the goal? Are you willing to put gas in your own gas tank? Yeah, I I always think about it as if, if you're thinking of a glass of water, right? An optimist would say that it's half full. A pessimist says it's half empty. A scientist will probably tell you that there's air in there. So that glass is full. A hopeful person tells you, uh, well, what do you want to fill that glass with and how do you fill it? It requires an active process. It's not merely passive. And one of the things that Rick and I and uh, the others in the Hope Center with Kids at Hope do is try to stretch that to believe that hope isn't just within the individual, right? It's not just cognitive, positive cognitive theory. It's also community-based, right? It takes a group of people to invest in one another, to strengthen one another, to get to this process of hope as a community, as a country, as a people. Yeah, that was excellently said. So on the topic of Kids at Hope, Rick, I was hoping that you could tell me a little bit as the founder of Kids at Hope, what was the initiative behind founding Kids at Hope? And, you know, what was really the goal in starting it? And what was that process like? Well, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good and important question uh, because it just didn't happen, right? It, it went, went through a process. Uh, you commented that this is my 50th plus year in the field of child and youth development. And over those five decades, uh, we've been focused on why some kids do poorly why some kids struggle, but figure it out and why some kids fall through the cracks. And we came up with this expression that kids who seem to struggle are kids who come from risk factors. And we began to categorize or even stereotype a whole group of kids, not even knowing who they were, but just knowing the conditions from which they came, poverty, uneducated families, uh, highly mobile, chronically unemployed, uh, drug, problems, alcohol problems, domestic violence. If kids came from these situations, we didn't even have to know the child. We just needed to know they came from a certain demography or situation. They were automatically at risk. And that is a lifelong label to carry, right? That's a stereotype and we know about stereotypes. It dawned on me one day that maybe we had the wrong expression to, to discuss kids or, or to define kids. And maybe the better definition would be to see them at hope because we would put them in an asset column as hope would be versus a deficit column or liability column where you would put risk. If, if they're an asset, you invest in them. If they're a potential liability, you try to get rid of the, your liabilities and reduce your deficits. So the, the term at hope seemed to make more sense than at risk, changes the mindset of adults who work with kids and we see young people as worthy of our investments and we create a better self-fulfilling prophecy. If the self-fulfilling prophecy is some kids do well, some kids struggle, figure it out, and some kids fall through the cracks, we're not surprised that that's what happens. But why not create the prophecy where all kids are capable of success, no exceptions, and with our actions. And when John mentioned we, our service delivery mechanism isn't a program or a curriculum, our service delivery mechanism is a culture, that there's a synergy that comes with hope, that we're trying to identify, harness, 
and share with every person, including the adults who serve the kids. That was fantastically said, Rick. So what year was Kids at Hope founded? How far in your career were you? Uh, this was 1993, so almost, what, 1920-something years ago. Uh, I was then the president and executive director of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Metropolitan Phoenix that we, I have to confess, overused the expression youth at risk because those were the kids that we were targeting when we should have been using the expression and, and a label that they were all at hope. And so that happened in 93. I went to Arizona State University. I says, I have an interesting hypothesis. Why don't we test the hypotheses that all kids are capable of success? No exceptions. Never been done before, right? We spent three years reviewing the research, coming up with an argument that all kids are capable of success. No exceptions. But you have to do certain things to create hope in their lives and to activate uh, them in their lives and, or activate hope in their lives. And that was a seven-year process. In 1999-2000, we announced our findings, and that launched Kids at Hope as a not-for-profit organization, sharing the research and practices associated with creating and activating hope. So we've been doing it now for 21 years. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, talking to John a little bit, John, you currently serve as president of Kids at Hope. However, you have this incredibly diverse background. You have degrees in political science, which you and I share. I actually come from a political science background. You were a speech and debate instructor, which we also actually share because I did speech and debate my entire high school career. And you've worked as an attorney, which we do not share. But if I did not go to grad school, I was going to go to law school. So there's, there's a lot of symmetry in our paths. But it was so fascinating to sort of be looking over your work because you have done so much. And it makes me wonder, firstly, when do you sleep? And <laughs> And second, tell me a little bit about how did your path lead you to Kids at Hope? So that's um, that's an interesting question. Uh, so one of the, the ways that I ended up with, with Kids at Hope is that it, it always had been my journey throughout everything I did to improve the world um, that I'm in. That's always been my goal. So when I did speech and debate, it was about empowering uh, the youth, when I was coaching, was empowering the youth that I was working with, right? I'm a, I'm a first-generation immigrant. English is my third language. I came from a blue-collar family. My father was a, was a janitor. My mother was a hairstylist. So I'm one of those people who isn't supposed to succeed, right? Uh, and for speech, debate for me was a, an emblem of that. Working on that gave me that freedom, gave me that liberation, made me, it was kind of a, a thumb to the nose of people who thought that first-generation immigrants couldn't speak English very well, right? Um, but then it became about empowering youth. It was like, I'm going to work with other kids and give them this treasure that I found. And as I was going to graduate school, um, I started to realize that I really loved studying politics um, and political theory in particular, but the, my concern was that I couldn't make an impact, right? A lot of times the pushback is, well, you're not supposed to be doing activist work, right? All your work is supposed to be purely research. It goes on a shelf, someone reads it, hopefully, and that's that, right? Write really good things that people want to read. And I went to law school because I said, well, maybe this is the way to take my knowledge and have a positive impact. I could do something in my community. I could be the next Thurgood Marshall or uh, Atticus Finch, uh, the earlier version of Atticus Finch, right, who goes out there and, and does right in the world and uses the law as an instrument for change. And I 
quickly was disabused of that notion, right? Legal practice falls within certain structures that doesn't give you that freedom. Um, and so I quickly began to learn that I really wanted to make that change through the other work I was doing, like my pro bono work. I was working with the Alaska Network for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. That was more amazing than the normal work I was doing because of the impact I was having on individuals that I was working with. And I wanted that to be the center of the work I was doing. So um, that was kind of the way I was going. And then unfortunately, in 2018, um, my wife, Lindsay, had a series of strokes. And when she had her strokes, we had to relocate back here to Arizona. So because the facilities in Alaska couldn't really provide long-term um, uh, therapy that she needed. So we came here to Arizona to go baroneurological in the Center for Transitional Neuro Rehabilitation. And while I was there, I got to meet Rick Miller. And I said, this is great. Um, I mean, it kind of aligns with all the interests that I have. This is always something I wanted to do is to have a positive impact. I felt like Kids at Hope was doing that uh, concretely in the community. I thought the connections with ASU, especially with Michael Crow's vision of what a university ought to be, that we should do translational work, that we should do socially embedded work, all of that aligned perfectly with my thoughts about taking the knowledge and expertise and the research we do at a great university like Arizona State and then bringing it into the community and making an impact by changing the lives of youth and adults. And so I think that Kids at Hope and the Center for the Advanced Study of Practice of Hope at Arizona State University provides that perfect melding that um, these two organizations provide the perfect melding for me to be able to do that work, to do work that's meaningful in the community, to do research that I think is interesting, and to use my skills and talents and strengths as we advocate in Kids at Hope to make a difference in the communities that I live in and serve. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you the short version of, of John's story, right? He looks at me, says, you're old, I'm young, uh, I need to take, you need to allow this to go forward and I'm the guy to do it. And we agreed that that was probably a truism. And it was happily ever after, right? We're, we're yeah. getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so fascinating hearing both of you talk about your careers and really your approach to life. I mean, I would certainly say that both of you strike me as very hopeful people who are full of hope, but is that how you would characterize yourselves? Or do you feel like you had to sort of learn to be hopeful over the course of your lives and, you know, after studying hope for so long? Well, I, I, I think we, we, again, confuse hope with optimism, right? And I, I think healthy people are usually optimistic people. I think that's a very healthy way of, of looking at the world. Uh, and then hope allows us to uh, activate that optimism into action, right? To, to not only see and, and, and believe that things will be well, but to take responsibility. One of our early mentors in, in the work of what we would call hopology, right? Uh, Shane Lopez from the University of Kansas, who, who's since passed, unfortunately. Uh, but Shane says that hope is knowing that tomorrow will be better than today and you have the power to make it so. And I think that definition allows those of us that are normally optimistic to do something with that optimism, right? To take action on it. And so you can be optimistic and hopeful, but if you're optimistic, but not hopeful, good things don't happen in the way they should. I think that's what we've, you know, we've discovered on a personal level, at least I have, and John will speak for himself, 
but knowing that cognitively I can control uh, the my world and what I want to achieve in it if I have the goals, the pathways, and the agency to, to, to go forward. Yeah, I think my answer is to say that it it is it's a thing that ebbs and flows, but you always return to. So you have to acknowledge, and, and the reason why I think there's a real distinction between optimism and hope is we have to acknowledge that sometimes things are bad, right? We, we've been through 18 months as, as a people on this planet Earth that has been traumatic and difficult with COVID-19. And it continues to be, right? It has been very hard. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that and say, these are difficult times. They have reformed our lives. My, well, my wife, Lindsay, had a stroke, right? We uprooted. I mean, one day I was working as a, a federal law clerk. The next day I was on a plane back to Arizona, like that. Um, no time, no time at all. Three weeks was from her stroke to when we moved back to Arizona, had her lifted here. So I think it's important for us to acknowledge the difficulties, understand them, understand that there are going to be hardships. But what we have to return to as hopeful people is that there is another day. And that other day, that another day, even if the goal is small, right, as tiny as it possibly can be. And I always recommend that, right? Start with small goal setting. If you want to go run a marathon in a year and a half, you don't say, my goal is to run a marathon and write it on your board and create a vision board for that. You say, I want to be a bit healthier. So I'm going to go walk my dogs two days this week. And next week, it's going to be three days and then five days, right? Little small bite-sized things that we can achieve to demonstrate to ourselves we still have some control because we always do have some modicum of control over our lives. And continue to engage in that by assessing who we are. You know, what, what do I have? What do I have in front of me, right? I could have said when my wife had a stroke, you moved um, down from Alaska. Well, there, there goes my legal career. There goes my trajectory. There goes my connections there and said, woe is me and wallowed in that. Um, there certainly was some of that, right? <laughs> There's still, there certainly was time to, to think about um, how difficult it was and acknowledge that. But there was also time for me to sit down, reassess, say my life path has changed, the trajectory is different, but now I'm on a different path. How do I go about creating that pathway? How do I assess my agency? How do I create goals within this new reality that I live in and try to work um, to have that hope in my life? And it's one of the reasons why you say hope is taught and learned, right? You're not born hopeful. Uh, there may be times where you're hopeless, but you can gain hope back. It is something that we could teach people to engage in. And sometimes, you know, when things are, are really tough, it can be really hard. Um, but that's also when it matters the most, right? Is that ability for us to get back to that goal setting, pathway thinking, agency thinking that is necessary for, for us to be healthy, effective people. I, I think from, you know, John's story, and, and we love telling stories in our presentations because we humanize hope. I mean, we don't, we don't want to, so uh, sanitized hope as a research construct that it loses that human sense of it. And yet we don't want hope to be a squishy thing that comes and goes. So we're trying to balance uh, its science again, its human impact, right? And the human impact comes from the storytelling of how hope has helped us navigate our lives, particularly through difficult times. But one of the ways we, we, we frame that is we remind our audiences and our students that hope is a choice. That's the cognitive side 
of choosing whether I'm today going to be a hopeful person by having my goals, my pathways, my agency, or I'm going to choose, which we do too, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, I'm going to be hopeless today. And we know from the early comments that John made and, and we, we advance is that here are all the benefits that come with being a hopeful person. And here are all the difficulties that come with being a hopeless person. Now you have a choice. Do you choose to be hopeful or do you choose to be hopeless? And once people understand that, that's transformational in their lives. It's that we've never shared that with people the way we're sharing it today. Right. I think that that is so incredible. And I think that just the idea that you do have a choice, even when things are, even when you feel as though your life is in a direction that you didn't foresee it as being in, that you still have a choice to, you know, gain some autonomy back and to lead your life in a direction that may not be exactly as you thought it would be, but it can still be the life that you want and a life that might even be preferable to the one that you thought that you wanted. And that's, and that's why culture and community are important. And that's why that's something that we advance, right? Is because the burden shouldn't just be on the individual. We should live in communities that support one another in their goal setting process, that empower people to understand their pathways, that give people access to resources that are necessary for agency thinking and to take control of their lives, right? It's, it's an incredible burden to put on a person to say, listen, you can either choose this or that and you have to do it on your own versus creating, as we do through Kids at Hope, right, a culture within an institution and in juvenile justice or education or community organizations say, we are here to support that choice. Right. You want to set goals? We're going to help you set those goals and we're going to give you access to the resources, the agency, the pathway thinking that is necessary for you to achieve them. So you're not on that journey alone. Right. So on that note, can you talk a little bit about some of the translational work that Kids at Hope does and, you know, how Kids at Hope works with community partners in order to expand work on hope? So the, tra the translational, translational work came about through that seven-year research uh, process that I discussed is looking at a wide range of research findings in the human services field. So it's psychology, sociology, education, recreation, medicine uh, that we looked at to see why, what was the research telling us about why some people seemed to thrive while others struggled. And one of the determination wasn't risk or trauma, which is often the, considered the case. It wasn't risk or trauma that prevented people from succeeding in life. It was the absence of hope. And that was such a contradiction to what we understood. The more risk, the more trauma, less hopefulness, the less achievement that happens. So when we began to look at that, we, we, we came to the conclusion that hope can be created if there are three elements that exist in our lives, regardless of the situations from which we come. The first one, if people believe in us, we seem to be more hopeful than if they don't believe in us. So all of a sudden, now we have to ask the question, are the people who are working with our young people, do they believe that they're all capable of success? No exceptions. And if they don't believe it, why not? Because they're preventing those kids from becoming hopeful. That's the gift that we give to each other. As John says, hope is taught and learned. 
If we believe in them, they're more likely to be hopeful. If we don't believe in them, they're less likely to be hopeful. That's what our translation of the research began to discover. It goes all the way back to the self-fulfilling prophecy. That's another podcast in the future, right? The second, the second element was which was filled with, with, with research support that kids do better when they have meaningful, sustainable relationships with caring adults. They do less better when they don't. So we call that the connect. Kids who are connected to by caring adults do better than kids who aren't connected. It doesn't say they do better when they have this service or that service. It's the relationship that seems to drive the efficacy of the service, not the other way around. So we now focus on relationships, not just on curriculum and programs. And the third one was this concept that we have borrowed from uh, some of the science work that we've now inserted into the hope science field. And that is something we call mental time travel. The ability for this remarkable organ that, that can create a vision of something that doesn't exist, but give us a pathway and the energy to pursue it. Mental time travel, right? If you can teach that, which we, you can, kids are more likely to be hopeful. Now, the translation of uh, all the science amalgamated into a simple strategy. How do you create hope? First, you believe in kids. Second, you connect with kids. And third, you teach them to time travel. When John talks about the community becoming part of it, we would then advance that by saying, so if it takes a village to raise an educated child, what do the villagers do? to do that. And we would respond, they believe, they connect, they time travel. And if everyone does that, kids grow up to be hopeful. And I, and I can give you a really great example, like on a smaller scale of how we do that work as well. So um, we have a county in the Midwest uh, that is running a juvenile justice program. So it's courts, uh, probation, um, and parole, uh, detention, um, and they are, they wanted to better understand how hope was affecting their, their officers as they're working with you. So we had a survey instrument created. We've been engaging this with one of our, uh, with Dr. Crystal Bryce, who's um, part of the, the hope team, the hope center team. Um, and the research came back and said that um, kids were increasing hope between their two intervals. Uh, but one of the things that they were having difficulty with was substance abuse. Like they often said that in the future, they saw themselves continuing to use substance. The research is pretty robust. It says hope as an intervening strategy can reduce substance abuse for a number of reasons that we could get into, like protective factors and by creating peer supports, and et cetera, et cetera. But we went back to this particular county in the juvenile justice program and said, well, the research is showing us this. And in essence, is saying, like, your kids are still wanting to use substances. Do you know why they want to? Are you asking that question? Like, what is the reason why a kid thinks that they're in their future? That's If that's what the researcher is saying, what is the reason why? What is the underlying reason? And then when you find out they're a reason, the reason why they continue to use, it could be that there are problems in their community or maybe they don't have access to certain resources or, um, you know, they they really care about their, their goal in, in a particular recreational activity, but they uh, don't know how to engage it all the time. And that becomes the the goal of any adult who's listening to that process to say, how do we advance what their goals are? How do we connect them with the resources, allow them to engage in their strengths, assess what is around them, what services may be available? How do we connect them so that we reduce the incidence of substance abuse? 
that's a perfect example of like where we're not just doing research with this juvenile justice program so that they can make assessments of how effective they are. We're not just doing an assessment to say, well, look, the kids who are coming out of your program still are thinking maybe they'll use substances sometime in the future, but then we have an intervention that's related to what the research is indicating is happening on the ground to transform that institution. Now we'll take it a step further, which is to say, what can we do as an organization, as Kids at Hope, to strengthen our practices when it comes to the workshops we provide, the engagements we have, to place a focus on this, the resources that we have as an organization to, to train or uh, to enlighten those who are our partner organizations. And then we have the researchers, again, do these the, the research they do to show whether or not that intervention is effective uh, so that we could continue to engage in these types of practices. We better understand our community. We better know how to engage them. We know what the evidence is. We use that evidence to inform our practice, right? It becomes this perfect transformational, socially embedded work that I, I hope is what universities want to do. I know the ASU Charter certainly says that it's important. Um, and, it's, and it's something that I really makes me happy that we're able to execute on. Right. I mean, it is important. And I don't know if I can speak for entire institutions, but I can at least say that I, as an individual, think that that is incredible and incredibly worthy. So, so as we're starting to wrap up a little bit, I was wondering if you guys could give a little bit of advice to listeners who might be listening right now and might be going, well, you know, all this stuff about hope is really cool, but I still feel pretty hopeless. So if you could give just one nugget of advice to somebody who feels completely hopeless right now, what would you tell them? So again, it, I think it drives to this, this, this one statement that hope is a choice, right? And, and so you, you can, it, like any other habit that, that you don't feel good about, you can change those habits and becoming hopeless, allowing yourselves to feel comfortable. Unfortunately, being hopeless is, is not healthy for any part of your existence, your mind, your body, your friends, your colleagues, your loved ones. So choose to be hopeful. And one of the things that I offer in that regard, that formula is hang out with hopeful people. If you hang out with hopeful people, you're more likely to become hopeful. If you hang out with hopeless people, the old expression, you know, misery loves company, you're more likely to become more miserable, right? Because misery loves company, but so does hope. Hope loves company and such a simple, critical choice to make each day because often we find ourselves lamenting over this or that and other people lamenting back to us what we're doing is we're we're reinforcing hopelessness or pessimism or depression when in fact if we can change the subject the brain changes with it so we know the neuroplasticity of the brain can change the networks and we're hanging out with hopeful people actually the geography and the architecture of our brain changes accordingly and we're wiring it to be a hopeful brain. Wow, that's pretty impressive science. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would add to that and say, first acknowledge that um, it's okay. You know, we all, we all have difficult times and if, uh, and if you need to reach out to someone um, because that, that can be very helpful in our lowest times. Um, and I would say that things are gonna get better and you're capable of making them better no matter how hard it sounds. 
And the way that we do that is we, like I said before, set tiny little goals. You know, I, I hate making, I'm a terrible checklist person, um, but I know for, for my wife, um, particularly as she recovered, and I always told the people at CTM, the Center for Transitional Neurorehabilitation, they should teach everyone about this, was they have checklists. And one of the reasons why they have checklists is because you can see your accomplishment right away, right? You know you've achieved something. And it doesn't have to be huge. If you're having a hard time, for example, you're, you're an ASU student, you have a hard time showing up to class on time. You don't need to say, I'm going to show up to all my classes on time for the rest of the semester. Start on something small. I'm just going to show up for my, um, you know, family development class on time today. And I'm going to show up on class on time every day this week. And then build on those goals. Because we have these little moments of success all the time. We just don't acknowledge them. And maybe it's something as big as like, you know, I got out of bed and I, right, especially during COVID, like I got out of bed and I took a shower and I put some clean clothes on. That's my goal for today. And I've achieved that because I think our, our brains do well when we have those measures of success. And then we expand on that, right? Take a moment to reassess, reassess what your strengths are, reassess who around you has the capability to connect you with the resources that are necessary for you to feel good and better about you that can strengthen what, what you can do and want, right? Uh, I, you know, speech and debate background, that's a great example. When I was at law firms, sometimes at law firms, they wanted me to do legal work that was just me sitting in front of a computer for 12 hours. And I was frustrated and I was frustrated because it was like, that's not my greatest strength. Like I can do research, but you would utilize me so much better if you put me in a courtroom or had me deliver uh, on a presentation to a group or went out as an advocate or worked directly with a client. Um, but our rigid structures that say, well, you're a first year associate, you're, you do research and you write memos versus someone who says, look, look what your strengths are, what your talents are, let's focus on those. So that's what I would say to anybody who's in that situation. And, um, and, I, and I wish them luck. And I really do want them to know that like things, things can get better. They're going to get better. I promise you they will. I want, I want to piggyback on, on John's comment because it triggered this thought that, again, we speak to often, and that is that we live in a to-do list world, right? Everyone has a to-do list. You have your business, colleague business to-do list. You have your personal to-do list. You, I mean, we live on our to-do list. But every so often, we have to reflect on our to-be list. Who are we being while we're doing this? Are we being hopeful? Are we being courageous? Are we being empathetic? Are we being compassionate? Are we being insightful? Or are we just checking off the checklist just to get the stuff done at the end of the day? And by doing that, we lose the human side of who we are as a whole person. And that is who we are, compassionate, courageous, hopeful, empathetic, all those great things that we need to give ourselves credit for uh, are important to, to recognize. And, and, and I, I underscore and acknowledge and amplify, we know life is going to throw us curveballs. Uh, we're going to learn to hit curveballs. We're, we're not going to avoid the curveballs. That's what life does. It's called an adventure. <laughs> and it's not what the normal expectation is. John went through a, uh, an adventure, right? Uh, Ill-prepared but he figured it out, his wife figured it out. We're figuring it out each day. And we know, as our friend Shane Lopez says, tomorrow will be better than today. 
and we have the power to make it so, even under the worst of circumstances. That was beautifully said. Thank you so much, Rick. So before we transition to sort of our deep questions to end on, I just want to give you both the opportunity to say any final words if you'd like, or if there's any way that you want to tell listeners how they could get more information or get involved with Kids at Hope, uh, please feel free to do so. We're also going to have information about Kids at Hope and the Hope Center in our show notes. So our greatest strength is that we, we, we do a lot of training, a lot of presentations, symposium. We share this information. We share the research, the principles, and the practices, along with consulting, helping organizations go from where they are to where they would like to be by creating a culture of hope for everyone. So we do that through the clinical arm of the center, which is Kids at Hope right now. That's the clinical arm of the center. And you can find us at kidsofhope.org. You can Google the Center for the Advanced Study and Practice of Hope to find that. John's available, I'm available, our team is available. So we love to engage people in our day-to-day conversations and collaborate, partner, create alliances because no one can do this alone. But boy, if we can do it together, we can change the world. Yeah, and don't don't hesitate to email, call, text. I'm really good with text messages. I'm very prompt with them. I know that probably puts me a, a bit younger generation than I probably exist in, but nonetheless, very good at text messages, uh, calls, emails. Just connect with us. We're, we're here for you. We're happy to support anyone and everyone on their journey um, and that we learn so much from our partners. So please, please feel free to do that. Awesome. So we're now going to transition into my favorite part of the podcast or one of my favorite parts. I like this whole thing, but this is such a great opportunity to just get a little bit of sort of deep cuts on what your personal philosophies are. So just like the first questions, these will be sort of rapid fire and I'll have, you know, Rick answer first, followed by John. Sound good? Yeah. All right. So my first question is, If you could have a conversation with yourself from five years ago, what would you want to tell him? Boy, I would I would say to myself five years ago, um, make good decisions because it's going to affect what where you will be five years hence. So don't think about the present. Equally think about what this decision can mean five years hence. I, I would just say, be prepared for the unprepared, the things you can't prepare for, right? Like that's that's a big deal. Um, you know, you spend so much time worrying about what's right in front of you, and sometimes you lose track of enjoying the life you're having and figuring out how you're gonna navigate the the curveballs and the difficulties that are in front of you. So just just be prepared. All right. My second question is, what gives you hope? Children gives gives me hope. I mean, I I've been blessed to spend an entire life career lifetime working with young people directly, indirectly, from different positions in the trenches. And I recovered uh, 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 and uh, existence in in academia. So I I've I've, I've been blessed to to see that I, I, that the young people really, as we often say, cliche wise, 
are, is our future. They are our future, right? So give them every chance to be successful. And hope is a big piece of that. For, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's also storytelling. It's hearing people's stories, hearing what they're doing. I get really excited about what people are doing with hope, um, with the partners and practitioners we work with. Um, hearing, you know, people, the other day I was speaking to a uh, master's, uh, someone who had a master's degree and working at Johns Hopkins University who went to Kids at Hope while she was in a summer program. And hearing her tell how Kids at Hope created a philosophy that she lived in, lived by, and now she's this great writer uh, and in a really prestigious university um, and doing great work. Like, wow, that was incredible. Um, and so hearing those stories, hearing what practitioners are doing, how they're utilizing our practices and our ideas and making their own. It's always wonderful to hear that. That's great. These answers have given me hope. <laughs> so my final question is, what is one rule you would want everyone to follow? Treat others as you want to be treated. Yeah, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to, that's a really good one, Rick. Uh, I would say that, you know, my, my family, our faith is, we're Zoroastrian, which is this really old religion that, um, so I would just say, uh, you know, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, um, that, you know, if that can be our guiding principle, it's simple, but it's true. These are golden rules. So I just want to say thank you both again. This has been an absolutely enlightening conversation, and it's been a pleasure to talk to both of you. So thank you all so much. This was a conversation with Rick Miller and Dr. John Parsi. Thank you. Thank you. If you're interested in getting in touch with either of our guests today, you can contact Rick Miller at rickmiller at asu.edu, and you can contact Dr. John Parsi at john at kidsathope.org. Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting thesanfordschool.asu.edu forward slash podcast where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. This conversation has come to an end, but our work here continues.